And as, on the one hand, the necessity for borrowing in particular emergencies cannot be doubted, so, on the other, it is equally evident that to be able to borrow upon good terms, it is essential that the credit of a nation should be well established. That was Alexander Hamilton speaking about the national debt on the report on public credit in 1790. He knew that debt was the price of liberty, and it was guaranteed by the faith in the republic. But did he ever envision we'd be in this kind of mess? Let's break it down on the Investopedia Express. Global equity markets are on the rise this Tuesday morning, January the 19th. And while stocks have kind of gone sideways in the past few weeks, the trend is undoubtedly higher, and it is a global affair. Japan's Nikkei is close to a 30-year high. China's Hang Seng is at a 20-month high. Europe's Stock 600 Index is at a 10-month high. And the S&P 500, near record highs, is off to its best post-election rally, up 12% in history. Do you smell something cooking? Yeah, that's the smell of government spending, and it makes investors' mouths water. It's a short but busy week for investors, so let's get set up. Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the 46th President of the United States on January 20th. He has already announced a $1.9 trillion spending bill, which he's called the American Rescue Plan. Think of it as an extension of the $900 billion package passed at the end of last year. Among the key highlights of the American Rescue Plan direct aid to households, including $1,400 per person checks to supplement the $600 checks that are already going out, extending the emergency unemployment insurance of up to $400 per week, and extending eviction moratoriums through September 2021. It also calls for expanding the child care tax credit for one year and raising the federal minimum wage, which has been at $7.25 an hour since 2009, to $15 an hour. $400 billion is pledged towards the public health effort and the reopening of schools, and $20 billion is pledged towards a national vaccination program. $50 billion will be used for a massive expansion of testing and the hiring of 100,000 more public health workers, and $400 billion to support local communities, including the help for governments dealing with revenue shortfall and to keep frontline public workers on the job. Consider this stimulus bill to be the first course for the Biden administration and expect another multi-trillion dollar bill around green energy, infrastructure, and jobs to be introduced in the coming months. In terms of the first legislative steps the Biden administration will take, the focus, according to a memo from Biden's chief of staff, will focus on what President-elect Biden sees as the four crises facing the country. Those are COVID-19, the economic downturn, racial injustice, and climate change. As for climate change, expect Biden to rejoin the Paris Climate Change Agreement on Wednesday and expect his administration to rescind a permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, which runs from Canada's Alberta province to the Gulf Coast oil refineries. As for the economy outside of the American Rescue Plan, Biden is expected to sign executive actions on Thursday related to reopening schools and businesses, and on Friday, he'll direct his cabinet agencies to take immediate action to deliver economic relief to working families bearing the brunt of this crisis. That will include an extension of student loan forbearance past January 31st and an extension of a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. Biden will also launch a 100-day masking challenge, imposing new mandates that require masks on federal property and for interstate transportation. Outside of the inauguration and the legislative arena, it will be a busy week for corporate earnings. 
Big banks, including Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Charles Schwab are all reporting results this week. Expect to hear that while their net interest margins were weak in 2020 given low interest rates, they are improving and they are expecting a strong economic recovery in 2021 to boost returns. United Airlines will report results on the 19th and we know demand was terrible last year. It's the forecast for 2021 that we care about. Shares of United are down more than 50% in the past year, but up nearly 30% in the past three months as investors bet on a recovery. And Netflix will report results Tuesday afternoon. Reed Hastings used to say that Netflix's only competition was its customers' need for sleep. Well, that was before Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Amazon Prime, and about a dozen other streaming competitors. Subscriber growth drives Netflix's stock performance, and it has been slowing down. Shares of Netflix are up 45% in the past year, but down 6% since it reported earnings about three months ago. To infinity and beyond? That's what some ETF investors are hoping for as the ARK Space Exploration ETF gets ready for launch. This could be the latest smash hit from Kathy Wood from ARK Investment Management. She and her team were behind two of the biggest ETFs in 2020, the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker symbol ARKK, and the ARKG Genomic Revolution Microsector ETF. Those are up 160% and 208% in the past year, by the way. ARCX, as the Space Exploration ETF will be known, will primarily track companies engaged in space exploration and innovation defined as leading, enabling, or benefiting from the technologically enabled products and or services that are beyond the surface of the Earth. Sounds pretty cool. Think orbital aerospace, suborbital aerospace, AI, drones, robotics. You know, the future outside of these atmospheres. 2020 prompted so many investors and savers to rebuild their portfolios and their financial plans and reset for the new year as the new realities of living through a pandemic really set in. Many of our assumptions about risk have changed or need to change with the new year. Christine Benz has been providing that kind of advice and practical solutions for investors for years as the Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar, and she joins us today on The Express. Welcome, Christine. Hi, Caleb. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. And I've been following your work for so many years and learned so much reading your stuff and and listening to your great podcast. What's the number one lesson investors should have taken away from a year like 2020? 2020 was such an odd year in that I think that there were a lot of lessons investors might have taken that would have been negative ones. So one, I think, was that, you know, we had that very short-lived bear market, and then it was off to the races after that. And so my fear is that investors will think that it's going to be like that in the future, that if we do encounter turbulence, that it'll recover that quickly. But I think the the main lessons that investors should have taken is just how anticipatory the market is, that it's usually way ahead of what you actually see if you're paying attention to headlines and and what's going on in the economy. So I think that the lesson is don't wait until you see GDP growth recover or the employment statistics start to get meaningfully better. The market is usually a step ahead of all of that data. And so if you wait for those signals to all look good to line up in favor of investing, you'll probably be too late. Yeah, right. And not only does it look forward, it's moving forward seemingly at a much more aggressive speed with a lot more investors in the market, both retail and institutional. There's almost no time to catch your breath and think about things. That's right. And we have seen this influx of 
new investors dabbling in individual stocks. Frankly, it's something that I've been kind of ruminating over because it feels to me a lot like it did 20 years ago, where we had many new investors entering the market, speculating, maybe getting themselves into risky positions without really the knowledge level or the experience level to be dabbling in them. So I'm a little worried. Now, you and I were cub reporters back in the, that day, but that <laughs> yeah. was a great time to learn about how the markets worked. But on the one hand, I agree with you completely, and it's very dangerous, especially when you see them playing in the options market, using margin and things like that without really understanding how that works or understanding their risk parameters. On the other hand, more people investing and learning about investing, I think we all agree, is a very good thing as long as that financial literacy and investing education is first, right? Definitely. And for some investors... They really do learn by doing. They learn by making mistakes. Some of the mistakes that are really cemented in our heads are the ones where we learn something painful. And I expect that that may be the case with some of these investors as well. And the other thing is, I think some investors maybe are rightfully segmenting kind of mad money portfolios from their real assets. And so they're sort of protecting the money that they are saving for their real goals. At least that's my hope. Yeah, me too. And that, that money on the side, that side portfolio, if you want to trade, play in the cryptocurrency market, speculate on high-flying stocks, great place to do that, but not with the money you think you're going to need 5, 10, 20, 50 years out. That's a completely different equation. The 60-40 portfolio, and you at Morningstar do such a good job of rating mutual funds and looking at, across the different asset classes. It actually did weather the storm all right in 2020, despite the ups and downs, some really rocky weeks. But it's really right in that low interest rate, high government spending, high growth world. How does it fit in looking ahead at 2021 and what we know about you know the spending plans of the new administration? Well, I think that investors who are looking at a 60-40 portfolio today need to be careful not to just get caught up in how tremendously well such a portfolio has performed over the past decade, because we've had declining yields for the past decade. We've had U.S. large caps outperforming almost everything else. So I think you want to be careful not to extrapolate forward and understand, especially with that fixed income piece that you referenced, Caleb, that where yields, starting yields are as low as they are today, that's really thin gruel for bond investors going forward because there's such a tight correlation between starting yields and subsequent returns from fixed income assets over the next decade. So, you know, if you're lucky to earn 1% on a high quality fixed income portfolio today, guess what? That's probably going to be roughly in line with your 10-year annualized return. So I think you need to be really careful about being too conservative at this juncture. Not that I think that many investors are being too conservative today, but you really have to recognize how constrained the return potential from the fixed income piece is. Equities as well. The valuations are extended in the U.S. market, not universally. It's been kind of a bifurcated market, which we can talk about. But I would not expect great firepower from a 60-40 portfolio over the next decade. Which is, it makes it such a conundrum for investors, especially older ones, pre-retirees, 
those in retirement, those in retirement that realize that their life post-retirement is going to be not a 10, 15-year thing, maybe a 30-year, maybe a 40-year thing, whether they're, they've chosen that or not. So they're in this position where they kind of have to lean into the risk. At the same time, they want to be conservative and smart to make sure that from a personal finance perspective, they're okay. How do they do that? It's really tricky, but you're absolutely right. It's it's a balancing act because they absolutely need the growth potential that equities provide them. I think one of the key things for retirees to think about, and there's been a lot of great research done in, in this space, is just think about their withdrawal rates from their portfolios, especially if their portfolios do encompass safe securities. It seems that starting withdrawals, especially for new retirees, need to be lower than sort of the standard 4% guideline that a lot of retirees run with, that you'd want to be thinking about more like 3 3.5% perhaps starting withdrawals. The good news is, and I think this is kind of under-discussed, is that a countervailing force is that balances are enlarged, right? So if I'm starting retirement this year, yes, I'm telling you that you should probably start with a lower withdrawal than 4%, but your balance is probably larger, assuming that you've participated in the stock market's gains. So I think that that's a positive force in play as well. It's not saying that you need to take a lower amount necessarily. Your percentage should be lower, but if you're taking it out of a larger pie, that shouldn't be a big harrowing deal for you. Let's talk about the brass tacks of personal finance planning in 2021. You know, we used to say three to six months of savings, emergency savings would be good. I think for a lot of people that just didn't cut it in this pandemic, that lost their jobs, were furloughed, lost meaningful parts of their income. So we've said now six to nine at least. But, you know, investing, saving, planning, it's more than just asset allocation. It's about the big holistic plan. What are you advising clients of all ages, but say, you know, any folks in their early in their careers and then folks sort of later in their careers in terms of that holistic planning now? Yeah, I I think emergency funding is a great place to start. I've been thinking a lot about this. And I agree that sort of three to six months is maybe a good starting point. But we've got gig economy workers with very lumpy incomes, maybe big, long periods where they're unemployed. Older adults, it tends to take them a longer time to replace jobs if they have lost them. So I like the idea. I like your six to nine months worth of liquid reserves. I think you could take that as high as one year's worth of liquid reserves, especially when you think about how low the return differential is between cash and bonds today. It's not that big a deal, whereas you can get FDIC insurance on your cash products. So I think that that's a good starting point thinking holistically about retirement. And key thing that I've been thinking about is for people who are older later in their careers, just making sure that as you think about your investment portfolio, you're hedging against what retirement researchers call sequence of return risk. And that basically means that you would embark on retirement and encounter a bad market right out of the box And the key way to hedge against that is to be able to adjust your withdrawals, as we were talking about, but also, you know, think about having an even larger cash cushion set aside. Because if you have, say, one to two years worth of portfolio, planned portfolio withdrawals in cash, then you can go ahead with your plan. Even if Armageddon happens in the market, you can retire roughly on the date when you were planning. You can retire roughly with the cash flow that you were expecting to have from your portfolio. So I like that idea of kind of structuring the 
retirement portfolio by anticipated withdrawals and carving out some safe stuff in the portfolio. And it all comes down to having the plan, whether that's the plan you make for yourself or the plan you're working on with your financial advisor. You got to have something. Otherwise, you have nothing to hold on to when things get a little wild and we know things can get a little wild out there. Let's actually dial this one down to the younger investors, people just starting out. So many people coming into the market for the first time last year because it was exciting and they had time, frankly, and maybe some money. But in terms of building that balance foundation, to start your investment life, what do you recommend? I recommend to keep it really boring, unfortunately. And I understand the many reasons why people have been attracted to investing in some of these, you know, truly great companies with exciting products. But I think, you know, if you're just starting out, keep it simple, use a target date fund. And in my career, I can think of no better innovation for individual investors just starting out where you've got sort of an age appropriate asset allocation mix, usually really low cost constituent products in a target date fund. So, you know, index tracking funds. So I think that that's a really great starting point for investors who want to have all equities Use an index fund, whether a total market index fund or an exchange traded fund. Either one is just a really great framework for getting the plan off the ground. And to the extent that you're dabbling in individual stocks, really segregate that from your meaningful assets. You know, set a limit of maybe 5%, 10% of the total portfolio that you'll use for your more speculative, exciting activities in your portfolio. Great advice. And you're full of great advice. And if folks want to follow you, follow Christine Benz. You've got the great blog on Morningstar.com, following you on Twitter at Christine Benz. And then your podcast, The Long View, is such a must listen for folks that really want to get into this. Well, thank you so much, Caleb. It's it's a, a fun, ever-changing space, as you know. So it's it, it's been great to be here today. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart about the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Bruce Shulman out of Kansas City. Bruce suggests net interest margin as this week's term, and given the wave of bank earnings we're about to get hit with, it's a good choice. Socks for you, Mr. Shulman, and hopefully you're getting some of that good Joe's barbecue there in Kansas City. Net interest margins, according to my favorite website, is a measurement comparing the net interest income a financial firm generates from credit products like loans and mortgages with the outgoing interest it pays holders of savings accounts and certificates of deposits. Expressed as a percentage, the net interest margin is a profitability indicator that approximates the likelihood of a bank or investment firm thriving over the long haul. As I said earlier, net interest margins were crushed like grapes in 2020, but as long-term real interest rates have been starting to rise, those net interest margins are starting to improve, and so are banks' bottom lines. Keep an eye on that line item as banks report quarterly results this week. We'll let the Honorable Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. take us out this week in honor of the national holiday named for him. Here's Dr. King delivering his famous speech entitled The Other America on March 14, 1968, in Gross Point, Michigan. Somewhere we must come to see that social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time 
And we must realize that the time is always right to do right. If you've never heard or read that speech before, I highly recommend it. That's it for this week's journey on the Investopedia Express. Buckle up for a busy one, and we'll catch up to you next week. Music